contrary to popular belief, we all really do need a mediator. We have a conflict within us between life and death, and there needs to be a judge and peacemaker to help resolve our conflicted thinking and crisis of conscience. Hebrews 9, 13-15 For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. How will God reward us in heaven when we have led a life of constant self-condemnation? I think for many of us, We've bought into the lie that we are alone and nobody cares, making it easy to aim our own condemning finger at ourselves. Either way, it's all about ourselves, the consummate victim and martyr. Being a victim is as much about domination as being a controller. It is not true that we are alone nor is it true that no one cares. Maybe that works for many of us because we've got this idea that if we were God, we wouldn't have anything to do with us either. But in light of that, I'm very pleased that I am not God and he is exactly who he says he is. Are we just old sinners doing sinner things with sinner people? thinking sinner thoughts, going sinner places for sinner reasons. What is it we know about ourselves that if God found out, we are sure he wouldn't like us anymore? Do we think God is somehow blind to the entirety of our lives and we must continuously hide? If the sacrifice of bulls and goats was only good to cover sin for a year, how much more is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ sufficient to cover your sins? I believe there are two kinds of secrets, the ones we hide from others and the ones we hide from ourselves. Without foundational honesty, our hearts shift from vision, a singleness of eye, to die vision, a multiplicity of vision. To buy into the lie from hell that we are nothing and a zero, and always will be because we are just old sinners. It's a lie that divides our heart, making the condemning vision of ourselves our truth, never taking into account how God sees us. Oh no, don't do that. How the Lord sees us is by far the correct perspective. I'm Social Porter and this is Outposts, a semi-live broadcast from the deck area of a rural cafe overlooking the Oklawaha River, where the trees gently lean over the river's edge and every evening is absolutely pleasant. So, who are you anyway? We all 
know who we say we are, but in our heart of hearts, do we see Jesus staring back at us in the mirror, or do we see the eyes of Judas the traitor, imagining reproach in our own faces with tears of condemnation leaking from the corners of our eyes? Who does God say you are, and do you really believe it? Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Friends, take it from someone with some hard-won wisdom. It is right nigh impossible to rejoice and to be glad in the day which the Lord has made when all your thinking is busy being just an old no-count sinner. Worthless. Matthew 19, 19 says to love your neighbor as you love yourself, not loathe your neighbor as you loathe yourself. Worthless. Objective honesty is the truth according to God. Subjective honesty is the truth according to me. When our subjective truth is so negative, looming and large, as it apparently is in many, It diminishes the objective truth, so much so that it can be difficult to grasp what God has to say about us. I figure we can either be mind changers or simply be the ones with changing minds. You can be pitiful and you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time. Who are you anyway? And even more important, to whom do you belong? Or, who's your daddy? I was raised in the southern United States, the Bible Belt. After I met the Lord in 1973, for more years than I can count, I was constantly, constantly, constantly told who I was not, what I did not, all that I could not, and everything I would not. Not. I can't remember but a scant handful of times in the first 30 years of my walk with the Lord that I ever heard anyone tell me how the Lord sees me, other than to say, He loves you. Then quickly adding, not to get too proud about it, lest you prove Proverbs 16, 18 true. Watch out. You know, that part about pride going before a fall. Then adding, And brother, you're pretty close, so you better watch out. My world was filled with watch out, be careful, and don't watch your step. How long can we live in the subjective truth, the truth according to ourselves, while striving to rise above the constant pointing out that we are sinners? There is an incredible conflict in us which says, I'm just an old sinner man and can never rise above my wrongness of character, 
and the other which is the perspective of God himself who says we are beautiful and lovable and usable. Maybe when God says we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus, it's just too good for most of us to bear. Because I feel really badly about myself doesn't change the fact that Jesus, by his blood on Calvary's hill, made those who believe on his name righteous. Just because it seems too good for me to bear doesn't make it not true, does it? Romans 8.1 Therefore, now there is not even one bit of condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, that of the life in Christ Jesus, freed you once for all, freed you once for all, freed you once for all from the law of the sinful nature and of death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You get it? Yes, we all fall short of the glory of God. Great day, haven't we constantly, day and night, been reminded of just how no good we are? What do we do then with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Is it enough? If we're going to be under the law, of which no man is justified, made free or made whole, then all we've got left is condemnation. If Jesus satisfied all the law, I must ask the question, whose side are you on? If we have tasted the grace of God and gone back to doing the law, the endurance and surrender of Christ is made of no effect and there is no other sacrifice to be made. We are free by the blood of Jesus and no going back to Egypt allowed. If you catch my drift, say that with me. We are free. Say it again. We are free. We are either in the law camp of condemnation or the grace camp of Jesus. Did God speak to you by his spoken word through the church or by his written word? Either way, I believe he certainly has spoken to you one way or another. Therefore, three questions really need to be answered. You need to know, number one, did God indeed speak to you? Number two, what exactly did he say? And three, what are you going to do about it? I'd like to unfold those three important questions a little bit. There are people who don't believe God speaks to anyone anymore, which if you take scripture seriously, <laughs> that's just silly. I figure he has a mouth, we have ears. Why wouldn't he speak to his kids? Maybe it's more that many people think it's too scary. Or maybe they believe they are too slow, insignificant, or sinful for God to speak to them. I find it peculiar that it's not them who can't hear, but God who doesn't speak. So, 
Let's suppose the Lord does speak to us. Come on, play along. Suppose he did. In that case, we'd have to then follow his path of possibilities. If all things are possible with our God, as it says in Mark 10, 27, then isn't it possible he has spoken to you? And if he was speaking, it seems to logically follow you'd probably want to better understand exactly what he was saying, right? Because you don't want to misunderstand, add anything to his words, or leave anything out. Great day, if the king of the universe is speaking to you, you would want to know, wouldn't you? If he said to clean up your room, you wouldn't want to turn it into cleaning everyone's room all the way down the street when he only asks you to clean up your own room. From there, we must pursue the Lord to know how to take action. He doesn't talk to us just to hear himself speak. It is for our benefit. It may take time to understand what to do, so be patient. One time it took nine years to conclude what was initially spoken to me by the Lord in a dream. As another example, it was a long time before Abraham and Sarah saw the word of the Lord come to pass concerning Isaac. I believe a large part of the body of Christ is in the middle of an identity crisis. Our Savior is speaking to us, and one of the most primary subjects He is speaking to us about is, Who are you anyway? We've established that the Lord is indeed speaking to us. If you don't believe it, read your Bible. God's voice is loud and clear. What else does the Lord say about each of us other than our selective reading, which only points out our shortfallings? Years ago, I saw a woman with a Bible in which she had taken a Sharpie pen and blacked out all the scriptures she didn't like. She had literally created a redacted Bible. I asked her why she had done that, and she replied that some were too good to be true and others were too cruel to be true, and she just wanted to read the moderate parts because she was a very moderate person. Similarly, we can't read a redacted Bible, only picking out the scriptures which point to our badness and all of our wrong and all of our sin and all the places we should and didn't and all the places we could and wouldn't. We must read the rest of what God says about us and those scriptures which seem too good to be true. If we are going to walk in sound doctrine, we must do something with those verses and no longer continue to ignore them. The Lord has spoken to us. We have a record. And at the very least, it's good enough to understand what he's saying. So, now, what will we do with the entire counsel of God? Hmm. Well, now there's a tough question, huh?
constantly bombarded by information concerning what sinners we are. We can only hear just so many calamitous stories before it sets a bias in our minds. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship is originally a Greek word, poema. It is where we get our English word for poem. Ephesians 2.10 is telling us that we are God's poetry, and if we are his poetry, it just doesn't seem right for us to call bad what God has called good. If we who belong to Christ are his poem, his righteous rhyme and joy, who do we think we are to redecide what God has declared? You, yes, you are God's poetry. He knows all your secrets, so don't get excited all the things you may not want anyone to ever know. Yet he still loves you and still would like very much to have a never-ending conversation with you. Yes, I realize that if you were God, you maybe wouldn't want to talk to someone like yourself either. But this is your lucky day. You aren't God. He is, and he has chosen to talk to you. That is... (laughs) If you have time. If you don't have time now, believe me, eventually you will have time and the Lord will be ready. For years I was under the impression that the Lord was just barely able to contain himself toward my smaller sins, though numerous and proliferate. But he wasn't so quick to forgive concerning the larger ones. The implication was that if I didn't get my act together, God would leave me for reprobate in the desert, so to speak, and there wouldn't quite be enough of the Savior's blood which could wash me clean from sin. That is not what the Lord says. We must do something with Psalm 103, 11, 12. For as the heavens are high above the earth, So great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. It doesn't say as far as east is from west until it suits him to go get them back to use as leverage against us. Neither can we go fishing for them to bring them back to make ourselves pay over and over, being filled with regret. That is the way the devil thinks, not the way God thinks. Your sins have been thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. But just to be clear though, the phrase sea of forgetfulness is not actually in scripture. When people mention the sea of forgetfulness, they are usually referring to several passages that talk about God's forgiveness and how when we are justified in Christ, God forgets our sins so completely that they might as well be buried at the bottom of an ocean. The main passage that contains the idea of a sea of forgetfulness is Micah 7.19. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. 
Isaiah 1.18 says, God will make your scarlet sins as white as wool. A sea of forgetfulness represents a place where our sins are sent so far away from us they can no longer affect us. In light of that, the Lord sees you as son, daughter, beloved, and friend. We have got to get the vision out of our heads that the Lord is some tooth-gritting, raging, galactic hurricane that can't wait to burn desperate sinners to the ground, those monsters of iniquity. Well, now, that is not God's heart. Sure, He is holy and righteous, unwavering in excellence above all the earth. But the problem isn't the way He sees us. It's in how we see ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. A man recently said that Jesus used death to defeat death and become sin for us. He got what He did not deserve, death on a cross, that we would get what we do not deserve, righteousness. If God says by His Son we are righteous, just because we are uncomfortable with that doesn't make it any less true. church, let's get a hold of this and see ourselves as the Lord sees us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now look, what part of all doesn't mean all? All means all, not mostly, pretty much, or for the most part. And God is not kidding around. If we're going to be balanced believers, walking in sound doctrine, then we must take all scripture into account. And if we're going to do that, then we can't continue to see ourselves as just an old sinner barely scraping by into heaven with the faint aroma of sulfur and brimstone on us because we so narrowly missed hell. No. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. To barely get into heaven means all-powerful God very nearly couldn't save us. Is there any part of you that His blood does not cover? If not, that is to say the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, was insufficient. He could save others, but couldn't quite save you. Come on, man. Really? That's absurd. What is it your eyes see which you think God's eyes do not? 
Maybe you feel you've somehow walked far from the Lord and the world has inserted itself into your thinking. Nevertheless, the Lord has not stopped calling after you. Come home. Maybe you were afraid God will be mad at you. Oh, well, in Isaiah 54, 9, the Lord says he will no longer be angry with us. I can assure you, having wandered away myself, the true heart of God says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, 7. Maybe you feel surely you are lost for good, but I can guarantee you God knows exactly where you are and you have not escaped his attention. You're not just some old no-count sinner. Don't call foul what God has declared sanctified. The Father knows his children and calls them by name. And he calls you by name. Yes, he knows your name. The Lord is confident in his ability to love you back from the edge of destruction and has made a way for you to find your way home and be welcomed with open arms. I read somewhere that your worth and value is not determined by the popular clique group that rejects you. Ultimately, not what you think, but what does God think of you? That's where the buck stops, with God. If we're going to be in a club, all we have to do is believe we are all right and everyone else is wrong. But to be a Christian, we have to believe we are all wrong and there is only one who is right. If he says you are more than a conqueror, then take him at his word and believe it. What have you got to lose? To say anything is just this or just that is a subtle way of belittling. As a result, in the mind of many believers, not only are they just sinners, but out of their mouth comes a further belittling of themselves by saying, just old sinners. Start speaking life to yourself in the mirror every day, and I don't mean braggadociously and arrogant. I mean speak life to yourself. Come on. Acts 10.15 has a powerful statement that we should apply to ourselves. What God has cleansed you must not call common. The word common in this case means profane. From God's perspective, if we are his poetry, his beloved, who are we to redecide his decision, calling ourselves profane? He says we are lovely. We say we are just ugly sinners. God says we are beloved. We say we are just sinners barely liked, much less loved. God says we are righteous in Christ. We say we are sinners and don't deserve anything good. You can snuff out all the flaming missiles from hell with your shield of faith, and you, yes, you, are a child of God, born of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. Amen. And that's just a start. And oh, for goodness sakes, please think about that.
Because for so many years I went through an identity crisis, over the years I've compiled a list of who God says I am. I hope you'll adopt these for yourself as I have. You, yes you can do all things through Christ Jesus. You are complete in Him who is the head of all principality and power. Did you know you are alive in Christ, free from the law of sin and death? You totally are. You are far from oppression, and fear is not part of your makeup. 1 John 5.18 says you are born of God and evil does not touch you. You are made of Holy Ghost Teflon, and the curses of darkness do not stick to you. Proverbs 26.2 is the truth. A curse does not stick without a cause, and Jesus has made it so there is no cause for curses to cling to you. Ephesians 1.4 says you are holy and without blame before the Lord in love. We cannot curse what God has blessed. Just ask Balaam. Read his story in Numbers 22. If Balaam couldn't curse what God had blessed, then we need a different story in our mouths about ourselves than being just an old sinner. You have the mind of Christ, and the peace of God in you passes all understanding. God said so, therefore it is true. 1 John 4.4 says you have the greater one living in you. Confess every day to yourself, if necessary, that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Tell yourself that as often as necessary until you get it down in your head. Listen, let yourself be persuaded by these words. You really, really do have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And yes, actually, actually, the eyes of your understanding have been opened. You may not employ that, but it doesn't mean that they aren't opened and the opportunity to see is there. You are a new creation in Christ. New, I tell you, new, all new. Never been another you like you are now. You are alive in Christ, fully alive, not just barely getting by, and the light of the gospel shines in your mind and heart. You are blessed in your actions and are a doer of the word of God. Not only are you more than a conqueror, but according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, you are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Oh boy, really pushing the envelope now, huh? You are either righteous or you're not. If you're only mostly righteous, then you're not righteous. According to the Lord, if you believe in Jesus Christ, God calls you righteous. That may seem too good to be true, but it is true because the Lord said so. Well, I'm Social Porter, and this has been Outposts, a little cool jazz and contemplative conversation made with the hopes of inspiring dialogue with your friends and mostly to influence your heart to draw closer to God. Music was provided by Lyle and Florian, Stefano, Guthrie, Joe, Andreas, Andy, and Bill. This production is made possible by Living in His Name Ministries, the Mebbin Freedom League with Tommy, Kevin, and Perry, 
Love that Knox guy, man. He's amazing. And our dearly beloved, totally inspirational Jeff and Karen Weaver at Trinity Bakers, where there's always something good in the oven. Who are you anyway? Just an old sinner sludging along like some desperate bunker dweller slogging along in the cold mud, hungry, sick, and sad? Or are you who God says you are, an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb, and an ambassador for Christ? 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are beautiful in the eyes of your heavenly Father, beautiful and beloved as Jesus is beautiful and beloved. You are blood brother to the Son of God, not some no-count sinner. Lift up your chin, church. Stand up straight and put one foot in front of the other. Any day can be your new day to begin walking in your calling. Drive carefully this week. Think about what you spend your time thinking about. Be consistent and repeatable. Hey, now we're almost home. Amen and amen.